News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been hearing and talking a lot about COVID-19 variants in recent weeks. And people have asked, well, where did they suddenly come from? Well, the more people who are infected with COVID-19, the higher the likelihood that the virus will mutate and produce these variants, like the ones that we have seen out of South Africa, the UK, and now Brazil. It's one of the reasons why preventing transmission was so important. I say was because you feel like, like you know the barn door has been left open on that one at this point. Uh, but these new variants are also throwing vaccine efficacy into question. So how much do we know about how the vaccines will interact with these new versions of COVID-19? Well, we thought, let's talk to Horga Fritz about this, Associate Professor in Immunology at McGill University. Thank you for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you very much for having me. Is there concern about how effective these vaccines that we have will be against these variants? Well, the first data that uh, came out from, you know, scientific labs worldwide, as well as Moderna and Pfizer, released over the last couple of days some very uh, solid reports. It shows that the vaccines will be efficient to most of these variants, although it uh, remains to be uh, tested if it will protect, you know, all people, all individuals across the age range. So I think this is uh, currently the biggest question that uh, needs to be clarified. So is the problem that we can't, we don't know that until we test it against these variants, which we can't do until the variants show up? That's correct. So there are a couple of questions that needs to be answered. First, you know, you know, avoiding transmission and having people infected is still the most important point that, you know, we all should collectively work together. Uh, second, you know, uh, getting people vaccinated with the current vaccines, I think both the Moderna and the Pfizer are excellent vaccines. It's terrific that in such a short time period they have been developed, they have been tested in several thousands of people. I think uh, just alone in Canada, I think now more than 300 or 350,000 people have been vaccinated without any, you know, huge problems being reported across the age range. So um, let's vaccinate. And then the big question is, um, in which people do these variants arise? Um, and we need to definitely increase our tracking capacity to monitor genetically for newly appearing variants because these, unfortunately, will not be the last ones that arise. This is, I guess, what health officials have been warning us, right, for so long, is to try to prevent transmission, and yet some people in the general public felt like, oh, it's okay, it'll be mild even if I get it. But this is what we were trying to prevent, wasn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, sadly, we do not. uh, I just heard uh, the newscast that you had on. We're still discussing, you know, interprovincial travel, national travel. And we did not, uh, you know, worldwide agree, you know, let alone in North America within Canada agree on travel regulations. So I think that's something that should be very high on our agenda. So you think we kind of tried to maybe fudge it a little bit too much that we should have been harsher? Absolutely. 
So you're saying we should even look at controlling interprovincial travel. Would you like to see that cut down? Well, it's not only, you know, like cutting the travel. I think it's, you know, monitoring, you know, variants where they appear, you know, being that in to increase the monitoring that would have been from the early days on a possibility. We knew that, you know, like viruses, you know, mutate, they aim to survive. So they adapt to their environments when they are fought. Um, so we definitely should have increased uh, earlier on, you know, monitoring genetic variants and, you know, cut transmission more. Um, you know, it is, uh, th- these are things that cause these problems. And, you know, uh, in, in, in large parts, we have fought them only in a lackluster way. So even though, you know, people, I think, thought that, oh, this is going to be over soon, it doesn't sound like it's going to be over soon. Are, do you think there could be more variants still coming out there? Yes, absolutely. So I think, you know, um, we shouldn't paint everything black. I think it's uh, terrific that we have vaccines, that, you know, we will have access in within this year, hopefully until summer, or at least late summer, there will be access not only to the vulnerable and elderly population to that vaccine, but also to the broad public. So let's get vaccinated. Let's vaccinate as many people as possible. Let's educate the large population on the terrific success that vaccines have made in our society since they were introduced starting the 1950s and 60s. We have eradicated some very horrible infectious diseases by uh, vaccinating the, the, uh, a large part of the individuals and created herd immunity against a lot of diseases. So we also should definitely aim to do that with the current vaccines. But in parallel, we need to be uh, more on the lookout for new threats, for newly arising variants. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Jörg Fritz, who is an associate professor in immunology at McGill University, talking about, you know, the concerns of how effective vaccines are against these new COVID-19 variants. This is exactly what health officials were warning us about for months, right? Why they were trying to keep transmission so low in the first wave. If you let it circulate, if you let it get loose in the population, you end up allowing it to mutate and the mutations are smarter, faster, more effective at you know getting into people and infecting people. And that is what we are seeing now, whether it's the Brazilian one, the UK one, whether it's a South African one. And there is a concern about vaccines. Um, I read about this. And if you're interested in reading more about something like this, I read a fascinating book, well, late, I guess middle of last year, called The Great Influenza. And it's by a man named John Barry. And it's the story of the deadliest plague in history. It was written back in 2004, but it's essentially about the flu pandemic of 1918. And one of the most important things I learned from that book was that the, the two waves, you know, the first wave of that flu was not that bad. You know, infected some people, sure, it was bad. It was worse than a regular flu season, and, you know, there was concern. But it was the second wave that came back, you know, six months later that, because the virus had mutated, that made it incredibly deadly and uh, killed so many people. But anyway, if you're interested in reading more about this kind of topic, the great influenza 
also tells us how important it is, right, for us to keep transmission rates low. This is exactly what health officials have been talking about this week in BC. And speaking of uh, traveling and interprovincial travel, we know Manitoba uh, clamped down on that yesterday, where Premier Brian Pallister saying that they expect anybody, even interprovincial travel now, to quarantine and self-isolate upon returning to Manitoba. They're worried about, obviously, increasing numbers too. So there'll be more to come on that here on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. More fascinating testimony at the Cullen Commission this week, where former watchdog Robert Croker spoke about the revelations that he heard on day one at the BC Lottery Corporation. So what was it that he heard? Joining us now is Sam Cooper, a global news investigative journalist who's been following this story. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So what's been so fascinating this week at the Cullen Commission? Well, we're really catching up in the new year. We've heard from two former high-level uh, investigators at the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch. They summarized what the, the branch found from about 2007. Asian organized crime gangs were growing uh, at, a, at a scary and fast rate inside several Vancouver casinos, especially Richmond's River Rock Casino. From 2010, uh, the, the branch found that suspected drug money laundering from China was growing at an exponential rate. Soon after, uh, they judged it was simply too dangerous to investigate these gains because they had such a powerful presence inside the casinos and they were known to possess restricted firearms. Uh, the, the suspected drug money laundering was uh, estimated to reach $200 million per year in 2014. Oh. That's so crazy. That's, that's just, it, uh, it, it, it's it's mind blowing, and again, the model here is uh, the gangs were, uh, as we've talked about, lending out suspected drug money to wealthy visitors from China. The visitors would pay back the gangs inside China. This was reported all the way up to uh, the the senior BC officials, who we heard understood that this money laundering model was taking place. And that brings us up to, uh, we heard for the first time from the manager of compliance at Great Canadian, that's Rob Croker, Mm -hmm. who moved on to the Lottery Corporation and took the compliance job there in late 2015. So you asked, what did he hear on his first day? Testimony yesterday said he was read a brief that essentially said, uh, police uh, are, are ready to accuse BC Lottery Corporation and casino managers of willful blindness. Uh, the, the Lottery Corporation investigators had found many of these VIP gamblers were interviewed uh, and they readily admitted that they had no idea where their money came from. It looked like they were paying it back at low or no interest rates in some cases, and this looked like transnational money laundering. Uh, Mr. Croker was told that on his first day of the job. And what did he do about that? There, his testimony covered, uh, remember, he was compliance manager at the River Rock Casino, for the the really the the allegations that we're talking about this uh, transnational criminal scheme, so we heard that he uh, he was part of some bans that took place on these high level VIPs that were connected to alleged Asian organized crime, loan sharking, and money laundering through the casino. At the same time, we heard a BC, a BC government lawyer say that Mr. Croker was in charge at River Rock Casino when there was uh, about 10% under-reporting of suspicious cash transactions 
to Canada's Anti-Money Laundering Authority. So that looks like a a pretty deep systemic problem under his watch while he was at River Rock Casino. And then when he went to the Lottery Corporation, in some ways he was looking back at his time uh, at the casino and according to the government, the BC government lawyer, uh, downplaying what occurred inside the casino from the testimony we heard. Sam, this is exactly why people shake their head about this story, right? Here's somebody who watched it all happen, knew it was happening, it was too dangerous for them to investigate, then gets rewarded with a new job at, the, at a government job that is supposed to help oversee all of this. How does that happen? Well, the, there's lots going on in this yeah. hearing. Uh, Mr. Croker is represented by a very high-powered Ottawa lawyer, a very uh, a talented uh, counsel. And you can imagine that there's a lot of legal technicalities on whether the casinos were fulfilling their uh, legal mandate to report suspicious, suspicious transactions or whether they you know, could even investigate, whether, whether they could even reject bags of cash coming in because this was the RCMP's job. So if you ask me how I'm interpreting the, the hearing testimony, the, the reasonable person says there's a lot of uh, sort of not me, someone else's fault going on. It sure sounds like it, which is exactly why we're having this whole exercise happen. Sam, thank you so much for the update. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. Don't forget to read his work at globalnews.ca. This week's testimony in particular, I have found particularly uh, infuriating. The way Sam laid it out there, too, kind of encapsulates it perfectly. And that is a lot of, oh, was it me? Was it me? A lot of pointing fingers, but the same people were kind of roaming around at the top of the regulatory kind of chain. And yet they all knew exactly what was going on. Nobody seems to be accountable. This is why we're having this public inquiry. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, that ICBC calculator is available as of 7 o'clock this morning. But let's find out more about how this came to be and what it means to you. Joining us now is ICBC President and CEO Nicholas Jimenez. Nicholas, thank you for being back with us. Oh, that's great. Good morning. So it's available from 7 in the morning, right? Onwards? Actually, it's been it's been live for a day or two. We've had over forty thousand people uh, go check it out and take a look at their premiums. Oh, okay, I had some people tell me they couldn't get through to it. Sounds like though it's been a very busy website. Uh, it's been great. It can handle about a thousand people at any one time and about six thousand an hour. So uh, I think people who want to get it, their premiums will have uh, an opportunity to do so. Okay, so what does this mean for people then? How do you qualify for the potentially lower rates? Well, everybody does. That's the good news. So uh, what and I think you know this already, but what's happening is we're moving to an enhanced care model May 1st. Uh, that, that model is an, a much cheaper uh, insurance system than we have today. So we're able to lower the price of insurance. Uh, and, and the estimator is essentially helping people uh, estimate what their new policy would cost in an enhanced world enhanced care world versus what it would cost today. I, I went on uh, two days ago, checked it out, looked at my, my difference, and it's substantial. The savings are really big. Now, do you have to have like both types of insurance with ICBC to get the savings? Uh, no, you don't. Uh, so you will get savings uh, on basic and optional if you are a full uh, coverage customer. Uh, I can't tell you what, uh, if you have private optional, uh, what they do is really up up to them. Uh, but if you're a full coverage customer with ICBC, we expect people to save on average about 20% of their premiums, annual premiums. Right. But even if they're just a basic customer, they would also, you think, see some savings? 
They would absolutely see savings. We just put in an application in December to the Utilities Commission for a 15% rate reduction on basic. Uh, so it's it's substantial savings, whether you're a basic-only customer or a full-cost coverage. Right. Now, so, Nichols, I think a lot of people we talked about, I know we've talked about this, as you just pointed out, about the new system that's coming. But I think this will still come as a surprise to people, right, when it does happen. That, that always seems inevitable. What will people notice? Like, if someone gets into an accident after May 1st, what is the difference? Well, it depends. Uh, so if you get into an accident and it's just your vehicle, uh, it is the same uh, it is the same process, the same system, the same, uh, you know, repair shop relationships. Uh, what is going to be different is if you're injured in a crash. Uh, and what's going to happen there is that you have a much better package of protection. So the, the benefits that you're eligible to receive are higher in all respects, whether it's wage loss, whether it's care and recovery. Uh, and, and, and the good news is that we, we don't need a legal system to help, you know, to help sort out what is owing to you. The provincial laws and regulations essentially make that all very, very clear. And I think it's going to be a much better experience for anyone injured in a crash, truly. Right. But people won't be able to like go find a lawyer then and sue. Well, no, because they won't need to. Uh, I mean, the, if you hope. The, well, I mean, they won't. The, 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 the way that the uh, these systems work is that they provide much richer benefits in every respect. So our wage loss benefits today, uh, for example, if you if you are off work, uh, you're covered up to about fifty thousand dollars. In the new system, it's going to be a hundred thousand uh, dollars. The amounts that you're eligible to receive for for lifetime care and recovery they 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 vastly exceed what you would be eligible uh, for today. So mm-hmm. in every respect, this is going to be a better outcome for people who are injured in a crash. What kind of a difference has this made to the bottom line at ICBC? Well, I mean, that, that will remain to be seen. But what we know is uh, the system is going to be about a billion and a half less to run. Uh, so we need one and a half billion less in premiums to cover the costs associated with claims. Uh, so that's, that's a huge benefit. But benefit to the company because it's a more predictable and stable system. And a benefit to customers, obviously, because it's cheaper. Uh, and I think everyone can appreciate that. When are we going to get more information about ICBC's finances over the last six months and year? Uh, well, we have our Q2 information out. Uh, that was put out, I believe, in late November, early December with government's uh, Q2 filings. And our Q3, we've literally just wrapped Q3. Uh, so we're finalizing the numbers. And then that will come out when government releases its Q3 information. Uh, so uh, Q2, as, as you well know, COVID has had a beneficial impact on our bottom line. So it's, it's, it's better than expected. Uh, and, and I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, the potential for a COVID rebate. The minister yeah. was... Uh, talking about that yesterday, uh, and and there are options in front of him and government, and we hope uh, to hear more on that very, very soon. Do those options involve people getting a rebate? Yeah, well, the government's made that commitment, uh, and the, the, now the, the issue is what are the options to do so, when, how much, etc. So those are all options before government, and we're excited uh, for whenever they're able to be announced. How uh, difficult has the last couple of years been at ICBC? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. It's been challenging, um, but it's been it's been challenging in the sense that we've had a system in crisis. What what's been really productive is that we figured out a way to solve the problem. Uh, and come May first, it's the culmination of, of a couple of years of really, you know, dedicated effort by not just government and ICBC, but by our partners as well, uh, treatment right. providers, doctors, uh, brokers. So everybody's going to really, I think, see a better 
experience when it comes to insurance when we move into enhanced care after May 1st. Now, Nichols, what about the interior workings of ICBC here? Because the system is set up for the adversarial, you know, a car insurance system that we had prior to uh, upcoming May 1st. Do you still need all those people? Is it going to change what goes on on the inside? Well, it's going to change how we do our work. Absolutely. So we've been doing a lot of work right now, uh, thinking about you know, the culture that we need in order to focus people's energy and intention on care and recovery. Uh, we, you know, we've got, we're hiring uh, different kinds of people, people with kinesiology backgrounds and physiotherapy, so health, uh, health-related uh, experiences. Uh, we've got lots more communication that will be going out to customers. We are going through tons of training. We have to obviously upgrade our systems and, and change our business processes. So for us, it is a full scale transformation and we're we're just so excited to be you know moving out of a world that we think is is not that great into a world that we think is going to be infinitely better for customers all right once again what is that website for people to check out then uh well you can go on icbc.com and you can find the links there or the actual uh url is icbc.com slash enhanced care uh but go to the landing page and very quickly you'll be able to get to the estimator tool all right thank you very much for your time Okay, thanks, Simi. Talk to you later. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this is the time of year when we traditionally talk all about Dine Out Vancouver. And guess what? It's actually still happening this year. In fact, there are a record number of restaurants that are going to be participating. So you can still do this. It kicks off next week, bigger and better than ever. Uh, Joining us now for more on this is Royce Twin, who's the Tourism Vancouver president and CEO. Royce, thank you for being here. Good morning, Timmy. This must have been quite challenging to say, you know what, we're still going to go ahead with Dine Out Vancouver this year. It certainly did require a lot of thought and consideration and reaching out directly with our restaurant partners to say, are you comfortable doing this? Are you set up to do this? Do you want to still do this? And the response that we got back from them was overwhelmingly yes. And I think it really bears out in the record number of restaurants, uh, over 350 participating restaurants. Okay, so how is Dine Out going to look? What's going to happen? Well, everything falls certainly within the provincial health orders and the protocols in terms of safety. And really the recommendation here is go out with your immediate bubble and visit your local establishment that's participating in Dine Out. And rather than traveling across, um, you know, boundaries around uh, the lower mainland, visit local, stay in your bubble. And the restaurants have done a phenomenal job of making sure it's a safe environment and there's still delivering outstanding service. And so it, will there be special deals? Like, so just like how dine-out would work, if you were going to eat in, you can do the same thing, but just take out? Yeah, so they've got a, a series of uh, programs depending on the restaurant. They all have different promotional offers, uh, you know, whether or not it's uh, price ranges from 15 to $54. Um, so it really depends on which restaurant you're going to dine-in, take-out, uh, and that includes our um, hotel partners as well, who are offering a special stay. So if you're coming down to take advantage of the deal, book a night at a great hotel downtown as well and get a $50 gift card. Wow, that's pretty good. So why do you think so many restaurateurs this year definitely wanted to get on board? Well, given what we're living through and continuing to live through uh, with COVID, and we've seen sales decline significantly, the very fact that we are still able to offer dine-in service versus takeout, which really is not going to do the job of supporting our restaurant partners. So that ability to still go out, our restaurants really wanted to take advantage of that. And so uh, we thought, you know what, let's make this happen. Let's support uh, our partners 
and let's keep this tradition alive 19 years and going. You know, Royce, I wonder, do I do wonder sometimes, though, that people have gotten so used to the takeout option, especially from like really nice restaurants. Is that something mm-hmm. that we're going to have to talk about whether or not we keep this when everything kind of goes back to normal? Because I think a lot of people like it. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder, I think we wonder collectively how confidence will return uh, as restrictions get lifted and uh, as uh, vaccinations roll out. And no doubt behavior will change. But I think what we what we realize still is that nothing will replace that out of home experience. Certainly, it's great to do takeout and we wouldn't advocate against that at all. But to go out to be in a restaurant in that social setting, have them do the great work to provide an experience. I'm not sure how you replace that exactly at home, because that's partly the reason why we pick the restaurants that we pick. So true. Okay, so where can people get more information about this? Uh, check out the website, Tourism Vancouver website, and there's a full listing of information, participating restaurants, uh, everything you need to know right on the website. All right. Thank you very much for that, Royce. Thank you. And good luck. That's Royce Twin, who's a Tourism Vancouver president and CEO, talking about Dine Out Vancouver. Yeah, remember that? We usually have it every time, every year at this time. Uh, it's that post-Christmas kind of boost for restaurants. Well, this year they need it more than ever. So it's actually going ahead. And in fact, they have a record number of restaurants that are participating this year, mostly, of course, on the takeout side. But check it all out online at the Dine Out Vancouver website. And I'm sure you can find something great to try. Kicks off next week. This is Mornings with Simi. Been following this story for the last couple of days and trying to make heads or tails out of it. So hopefully we're going to get some help doing that right now. But you may have kept, may have heard about how the the store GameStop, you know, the one where you used to go to get video games, it's been rapidly kind of losing stores. They're going to close something like a thousand of their stores over the next year or so. But for some reason, the shares of GameStop have just been skyrocketing. They have been on this unreal roller coaster ride. So what has been going on? Well, it turns out it's connected to this grassroots movement of day traders who are kind of coordinating online to manipulate the stock in this way. There's so much to unpack with this. So joining us now to shed some light on this and what it all means is Derek DeClote, who's the managing editor at Bloomberg Canada. Derek, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what is going on with this? Well, as you said in your intro, you know, what's going on is, is you have a group of, of day traders uh, who are using uh, social media, who are using Reddit forums uh, to target particular stocks, not just GameStop, although that's the one that's kind of getting the most attention, um, to target stocks to buy in an attempt to drive up the price. Uh, the, the reason that they're targeting some of these uh, companies, uh, GameStop is one, Blackberry is another, uh, uh, Nokia, which you, you may know from, they used to make cell phones. Um, um, they're targeting these be- in part because these are stocks that are uh, unloved by uh, Wall Street analysts, largely. Uh, they tend to have uh, uh, professional funds uh, t- tend to be kind of targeting them as potential losers. There are short sellers who are investors who... Uh, who bet who bet that the stock will decline in the future? Yeah, who are betting against companies like GameStop or or saying that some of these entities will have you know right. big business trouble ahead or bankruptcy, and the retail traders are, are the, the day traders are kind of taking them on, and 
it's there's not much historical parallel for this. It's it's a it's a very remarkable uh, series of events. And why are the, the typical market forces upset by this? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, I think, and I don't think we really know the answer yet. Um, this does sort of bring back memories uh, for me and others who've who've been covering this stuff for a long time of uh, you know the dot com bubble. It's nineteen ninety nine, two thousand when the internet was quite new, and you also had this phenomenon of uh, people getting online trading accounts for the first time and and kind of jumping in big on you know on the next hot thing. The big difference today is you know in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand we didn't have social media. You know, we didn't have Twitter to sort of amplify uh, this, this this chain. I mean, I mean, why is GameStop going up? GameStop is going up because GameStop is going up. I mean, it's literally right. kind of feeding on itself in, in this, in this uh, uh, self-fulfilling, you know, circle uh, of, of, of hype. It's not because you know, we suddenly think people are going to go flooding back to GameStop stores and they're going to, you know, and and and, and not downloading games anymore. Or, you know, I mean, none of that has much to do with anything that's going on, in, you know, in the real economy. Um, so it, it's really the, the amplifying mechanism of of Reddit and, and, you know, and Twitter and uh, stock bulletin boards and so on. That's, that's kind of the new thing. I guess I guess what I wonder when I read about this and how some you know securities people are upset about this, I think well isn't this just what Wall Street normally does? But now it just seems like people outside of their club is is are doing it. Uh, there are people who who you know take that point of view. Um, there are people who who including one of our own columnists, John Authors, has written a really good piece on it this morning. Who take the point of view that there's a generational thing going on here that, that you know that you have a group right. of mostly younger investors. You know, kind of quite angry at the establishment. Wall Street is the establishment, and so they're 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 throwing some money around, and in some cases, doing what most people would call a, you know a, a form of gambling to, to kind of you know flex flex their financial muscle. Um, and, and I think there's probably something you know to that. Um, uh, but, but as I said, there's no. <laughs> Uh, there's no historical parallel for it. And it's even, it's not that easy to truly figure out the dynamics behind it because, you know, I mean, Reddit is a a place where you can get an account and talk about stocks without even giving your email address. The anonymity is, is, uh, is, you know, part of the feature of this. If, if investment pros, you know, behaved in, in a similar way, uh, they would they, they could find themselves sanctioned pretty quickly, but in the day trading world, it's it's just very tough for regulators to to get their arms around it. So right. I think it is it is different from the usual uh, behavior of of the financial community. I wonder as well, like who if if money is going to be lost here, if someone's going to lose money, who is that going to be? Because if it's the people who are doing the day trading, well, they're gambling, as you said. But can the average person who might have money in the stock market lose because of this? It certainly yes. I mean, I think it, it all depends, you know, what you're invested in. Um, but the, the the remarkable part of the phenomenon here is kind of centered around a, you know, a, a relatively small number of, of stocks. You know, for most people who kind of aren't playing this game and who are investing sort of in a normal way through index funds or, 
you know, blue chip stocks or, you know, whatever, what have you, you know, they're unlikely to get as burned as, you know, the, the, the last person to buy GameStop on its way to, you know, $500 a share or whatever it's going. I, I have no idea if it's going to $500. It just, it just keeps going up. I mean, the, the last people on the ride are, are the most likely to get hurt uh, the worst. Um, and, and people who don't deviate from their normal financial plans probably will be just fine. Do you think there is, though, this um, this idea that they're in it to make money or are they in it to make a point? Is there um, a message behind this, what they're doing? I think some are. I mean, everybody likes to make money. Uh, some also like to, you know, to, to make a point about uh, and and if you go on these forums, you will see uh People not only promoting stocks, but making commentary about, you know, the corruption of Wall Street and the unfairness of uh, bank bailouts in the financial crisis of 12 or 13 years ago, um, or uh, the unfairness of the pandemic. I mean, you, you will see all manner of of kind of political statements as well. Um, so I think I think both are true. Um, um, it's it's. And, and, and there's no question that the pandemic and uh, uh, the, you know, the fact that uh, the pandemic has kind of fed, has allowed people to have, in some cases, the time and the inclination to you know, open trading accounts and do, do a bit of playing in the market has, has helped to feed you know, what's going on here. I heard somebody also describe it as uh, the modern day Occupy movement making a point. Perhaps. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's, that's the motivation of everybody. Some are just like really enjoying owning a stock that is, you know, doubling and tripling every day. Uh, uh, you know, the Occupy movement um, uh, you know, was a different thing, but I think certainly there are some common motivations here, right? There's a, there's a degree of anger at, 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 you know, Wall Street or the, you know, the yeah. you know, big money, you know, professional finance, if you will. And that is right. probably helping to feed some of it. We just don't know how much. All right, it certainly is fascinating. Derek, thank you for explaining it to us. Thank you. Appreciate that. Derek DeClote's a managing editor at Bloomberg Canada, explaining this crazy wild ride that seems to be going on right now in the market for companies like GameStop, BlackBerry, Nokia, where their shares are doubling, tripling every day because of these day traders who are organizing themselves on social media places like Reddit and then deciding to take a stock for a ride. More to come on that, I'm sure. Stay tuned. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau has said that new travel restrictions are coming out of Ottawa, but we don't exactly know what those are going to look like. There has been a lot of discussion, a lot of concern about interprovincial travel. Uh, Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister yesterday announced that even people traveling between provinces when they come to Manitoba are now going to be asked and required to follow the quarantine pattern as though they were an international traveler. Now, this is not going to be great news, I would imagine, for the airline industry. The National Airlines Council of Canada has been sounding the alarm as airlines have been so hard hit. This is not going to help. Joining us for more on this now is Mike McEnany, who's the president and CEO at the National Airlines Council of Canada. Mike, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me. Are you concerned about what you kind of heard coming from the prime minister? Uh, We're concerned. We're concerned on on a number of levels. Um, at, At a top level, industry uh, is not being consulted or or engaged in whatever is being developed. And we joined last week with uh, major 
aviation unions, uh, Unifor, CUPE, uh, the Airline Pilots Association, the Air Canada Pilots Association. And we wrote to uh, Cabinet, and we've also put out a press release uh, asking the government to work with us. The, the airlines and airline employees are the frontline implementers of whatever border measures may be developed. We all have the same ultimate objective. So, so bring us into the tent and, and you know, we will identify issues and problems and unintended consequences that we might be able to work around. But uh, I, I must confess, we did not have high expectations that uh, we'd be taken up in our offer. And, and to date, our expectations have been met. So you're saying even if there are restrictions coming in the next couple of days, airlines have not been consulted about these? That is correct. Yes. What do you think would work then, Mike, given the concerns about, you know, these COVID-19 variants and interprovincial travel? What, what is the airline industry willing to do at this point? Well, it, it's more than, just, more than just willing, actually. It's what we have been advocating for for almost 10 months now uh, with the federal government. And it is a, a, a robust testing strategy. And to that point, yesterday we issued a release. You may have seen um, Ontario Premier uh, Ford calling on the government to make mandatory uh, testing upon arrival from from international flights. We support that. And we put out a release yesterday supporting the call by the Premier for uh, testing upon arrival. We have been working with our airport partners, in in particular, of course, YBR in Vancouver, on a series of pilot projects over the past several months, all designed to try and get the government at federal level to move forward with a, a clear, robust testing strategy. Uh, that has not happened. Uh, announcements like, such as on December 30 of, of uh, inbound testing requirement, that's not a strategy. That was an announcement. When you look at an actual strategy, you're tying together testing over various time periods, and you're tying that ultimately to quarantine measures. And you see the, the pilot project that's underway in Alberta with Calgary International Airport. So with that pilot project in place now, and given the announcement of December 30, you will have a test taken uh, three days within the three-day window before your flight. You will have a test taken upon arrival, uh, and then you would have a subsequent test taken on day seven, and you would quarantine until day seven. That's three tests over over a reasonable time period that is still attached to quarantine. And if you have a negative, obviously all three tests will have to be negative. And if your third test is negative, uh, then your quarantine uh, approach changes. So we, we've been trying to, to get uh, database and science-based uh, measures implemented, but uh, t- to date that has not been successful. We have implemented a wide range of operational and, and regulatory requirements, as have our airport uh, colleagues, to protect passenger health and safety and public health and Obviously, we are going to continue to do so, but I I come back to my earlier comments at the beginning of the interview. We want to be part of, we want to be in the tent as these conversations are being developed, and we also firmly believe that labour should be there as well. Do you think then that if, you know, you had those kinds of restrictions in place, would it be enough to make people more comfortable to fly? Well, ultimately, ultimately, those exercises are designed for two things. First and foremost, protect public health and safety. If we're doing that properly and we're communicating it properly, then by definition, it's going to address your question in terms of comfort for people to fly so that they're mutually reinforcing. And as we go forward now, uh, there's been another a, a series of, of, of developments also on, on a public policy front with respect to aviation and, and flying. As we go forward now to continue to create that, that comfort level amongst the public, but also to continue to protect public health and safety. We also have to start getting our heads around how we are going to ensure that passengers are able 
to communicate their their testing data and their vaccination data in a secure fashion to airlines and and and, and governments electronically and move away from what we currently have which of course is is paper which is a 1970s 1980s approach to to providing uh, material at the border how we're going to do all that electronically right. and in real time uh, to to to, to ensure the veracity of the system and ensure the communi- appropriate communication between government and, and passengers. Well, Mike, I sure will be talking to you again. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you. Mike McEnany, who's the president and CEO of the National Airlines Council of Canada, concerned about these new travel restrictions that are going to be announced out of Ottawa this week. Says the airline industry up till now has not been consulted about that.